The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And to help us do that today is my guest, Dr. Bob Quinn. He is a leading green businessman with successful ventures in both organic agriculture and renewable energy. Raised on a 2,400-acre wheat and cattle ranch in Montana, Dr. Quinn earned his Ph.D. in plant biochemistry at UC Davis before coming home to the farm in 1978. In 1986, he planted his first organic crop, and by 1989, he had converted his entire farm to organic production. He served on the first National Organic Standards Board. He has been recognized with the Montana Organic Association Lifetime of Service Award, the Organic Trade Association Organic Leadership Award, and Rodale Institute's Organic Pioneer Award. He has founded five significant enterprises, including a regional mill for organic and heritage grains, also Kamut International. In addition, Dr. Quinn remains active in research and has co-authored pioneering studies on the nutritional benefits of ancient grain. Today, we are going to be talking about his excellent book that is co-authored with Liz Carlisle titled Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food. Welcome, Dr. Quinn. Thank you very much, Melinda. It's great to be here. It is great to have you with me. Your book is absolutely fabulous because on the one hand, it does talk about wheat today and your research, but it also takes us back in history. And we look at the kind of farm policies that we've had in place and how that's influenced our food system. I want to take you back to your high school days. You were very interested in being a scientist. And you did an internship, or you went to a science camp, if I recall. Well, Summer Science Institute, they were called. Okay. And you were tasked with studying 2,4-D. And you learned through radioisotope that dicamba was taken up through the entire plant that you were studying. Tell me more about your research. I was a high school student and paired up with a plant physiologist at Virginia Polytechnic Institute, VPI in Blacksburg, and my project was to study by x-ray radiology the movement of dicamba throughout the plant. We were putting little drops on the leaves, surrounded by a little wall of Vaseline or whatnot, so it didn't run all over the surface of the leaf. And then after a few days, we cut those plants into pieces, exposed them to x-ray film, and the uh, dicamba, the bandle D as it's called, was a tag with a radioactive tracer. So it showed up on the x-ray as an outline of the veins or the roots or wherever it would go. And uh, we found it went everywhere. It was quite surprising. Well, the reason why I wanted to bring that up is because there you were back in high school studying this compound, and it is being reintroduced today in agriculture because of weed resistance to Roundup or glyphosate being the active ingredient there. Yeah. And so 
soybeans in my neck of the woods are being sprayed with dicamba and Roundup right now. And if you found that the entire plant was taking up that poison, I'm just going to assume that it's also in the soybean then, correct? Well, what we saw in our x-rays, it went everywhere. So every part of the plant that was intact at that time, we were just looking at weeds. Mind you, we weren't looking at food crops, but we saw it in the roots and all through the leaves and in the growing points, which would have turned in the flowers if, if you give them not long enough time. Yeah. So it was everywhere. Well, I think it's important to go back and look at the history, and you have had such a varied experience in agriculture and plant biochemistry that I think bringing your wisdom to the table is truly critical. So you went to UC Davis. It's a school that is very heavily involved in biotechnology. You didn't question biotechnology until a certain point. What happened? Well, it wasn't really called biotechnology in those days, but it was certainly an industrialization of agriculture, including more and more herbicides, pesticides, and chemical fertilizers, and manipulation of the plant in about every way imaginable. The, the GMO or manipulation of the gene actually was very much in its embassy, and no one was actually doing that yet at our campus, although it was being talked about. I didn't really give it much thought because everybody said, oh, yes, it's the future, and it's going to be great, and all these advances can be made. But the thing that really got me thinking was a summer field trip to an orchard that I was just on a class excursion, essentially, just wanting to see some of the California's agriculture since it's so different than Montana, where I was raised. And we were in a peach orchard, and these peaches were hanging on the tree looking luscious, ripe, just beautiful orange and blush of a ripe peach. And we were allowed to pick one, of course. And when we picked one, it was hard as a rock, and it didn't, it had no aroma, no taste, it tasted terrible, it tasted green. And it was green, but it looked ripe. And they had been able to discover that if they sprayed the peaches with a certain combination of petrochemicals, which I suppose is a trade secret, but anyway, that's what it was, it would cause the peaches to turn the flush of a ripe peach while it was still green. And therefore, the peaches could be picked green, shipped across the country in large crates, rather than individually double-wrapped in small boxes the way we used to get them when I was a kid in Montana. And when they get to the store, they look beautiful, but they have no flavor, and they never ripen properly. A lot of them that I bought that way get brown from the seed out, and they're just, they're never flavorful like close to tree-ripened fruit used to be that I had remembered from my youth. And I was astounded by this. I thought, wow, this is a kind of deception. <laughs> this is fraud. We're pulling the wool over people's eyes just so that we can get food to them cheaper, yet the food isn't tasty. It's, it's close to worthless. Yeah. It's so interesting that you watched the agricultural industry evolve, and you also saw a dramatic difference when the farm that you left in Montana when you went off to college, and then when you came back to Montana, you found that the landscape was different. You found that many of the small farms weren't there, the soda shop wasn't there, the movie theater wasn't there. What happened to the small agricultural economy in your community in Montana? Well, it really started at the farm level. The push to grow more and get bigger was everywhere from the highest government levels on down. And, of course, the chemical companies were right there showing you how to do it. And their cry was that we can, we can sell you more chemicals and make more bushels, grow more wheat, 
and theoretically, although that never really happened quite this way, you're going to make more money. Um, what actually ended up happening, it, it costs more to uh, farm and for all these inputs. And a lot of times when the prices were depressed because of the big surpluses and because of the great advance in yields, people couldn't pay their bills anymore and they started going out of business. Most of my neighbors in never encouraged any of their kids to come back to the farm. They said, for heaven's sakes, you can go to the city and make a real living. Don't come back here and starve to death, which is quite an irony when people who are raising our food are starving to death, (laughs) figuratively. And uh, because the farmers were starting to go broke and leave, their support of the small town that I grew up near Big Sandy, which is a 1,000 people when I graduated from high school in 66, and now it's hardly pushing 600 this diamond spiral has just continued. That business is closing, which results in more or less more people moving out and and less support with, for the businesses that are left. Mm. And you describe early in the book the Committee for Economic Development and how it was basically made up of industrialists, and they really had a mission to basically make farms bigger, employ agricultural chemicals, and you say that. The Committee for Economic Development sought to boost this manufacturing industry. And by the 1970s, more than 100 industrial plants were producing approximately 1,000 agricultural chemicals, which would then be combined into more than 50,000 registered pesticides. Yeah, and much more than that, With their idea was that with the bigger farms and the more mechanization, you're going to free up a lot of cheap labor that would move to the city and and be able to be employed in the further industrialization of the economy. So what made you stay in your farming community and try to make a go of it as a farmer? Oh, well, I loved it. <laughs> I loved what I was doing. I loved farming. I loved growing plants. And I wasn't so a great cattleman, but that was part of what we were doing, too. So that was fine. I enjoyed that, but I really enjoyed the plants more and, and experimenting all the time. My whole farm became my laboratory and then when I bumped into uh, the idea of converting to organic, that just increased the uh, experimentation uh, tenfold more, and it, it became really a lot of fun. Yeah. And it was a great challenge to me. What was it that led you to organic agriculture at a time when there's so much pressure to go with the crowd, and the crowd was following this modern agricultural path, using the chemicals? You must have stood out like a sore thumb. Well, my neighbors thought I'd been in California too long, I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) But um, the reason I got into it is because we started selling high-protein wheat directly off our farm to whole grain bakers in California in the early 80s. And our biggest customer, after just one year in business, asked us to find some organic wheat for him at the same kind of quality we were sending him off our farm. And I really didn't even believe in organic. I had been taught that Plants couldn't tell the difference between a molecule of nitrogen from a manure pile and one from a, a bag of ammonium sulfate or any other chemical fertilizer. But because my customer was asking for it, I went looking for it. And I found some organic farmers in Montana, and I was very intrigued with the stories they told about growing their own fertilizer and how the tilt of their fields were changing since they converted organic. They could feel the difference under their feet as they walked across the field. And I was really intrigued by that. And and that led me to do some experimentation on my own farm. And after two years of great success and just two experiments I did, 
I decided to go cold turkey with the whole rest of the farm, and that was the last time I used any chemicals over 31 years ago. Wow. Well, you are a wheat farmer, and you have in particular looked at what's happened to wheat over the course of history. And you say that the wheat that we're growing now is not the same as the ancient kinds of wheat grains that were grown, and that because of the changes that the grain has experienced through, I guess, breeding, one would say, that's why we're seeing so much difficulty within the population from a health perspective, where people say, we don't want to eat wheat, it upsets my stomach. What do you think is going on? Well, a lot of people blame gluten, Melinda, and I don't think it's as simple as just saying, it's all in the gluten, and if we're wheat-free, gluten-free, we're going to be fine. Wheat has a lot of nutrition that we really need, and after all, it, it built the civilizations of antiquity, from the Babylonians to the Greeks to the Ephesians to the Romans and Egyptians. All those great civilizations were built on a diet of wheat, and yet today, 20% of the people in this country can no longer eat it without some sort of problem, mostly digestive problems developing, and I spent a lot of time researching that because as a wheat farmer, I took great exception to that and was frustrated and insulted and, and didn't know really how to fight back. But the more I studied it, I found that actually there's about four different things going on that's contributing to this problem. The first is how the wheat's grown. With the industrial method of cultivation of most of our wheat using chemicals from the beginning to the end, we've changed some of the properties of how it's grown. It's certainly been bred to produce more bushels to respond to higher amounts of chemical fertilizer. It's been bred to be shorter, to be more disease-resistant and insect-resistant, and everybody might say, well, that's just a wonderful thing. You know, we have more wheat now per acre, and that's probably true. But what we don't have is more nutrition per acre. We have less nutrition. So even though we're filling our stomachs, we're not nourishing our bodies. And that's part of the problem. And another part is the breeding that went on to make the bakers happy. They wanted wheat that could make more loaves of bread for less wheat. And they did change the gluten to accomplish that so it would hold more air, so they could sell more air in a loaf of bread and have less wheat in it. Wow. The other thing they did was use fast-rising yeast, which works so fast it just makes carbon dioxide out of fermentation of the sugar they add to the dough doesn't pre-digest any of the gluten or starch or anything else in the wheat, like long fermentations of sourdough, for example, does. And therefore, people's systems that are sensitive to gluten have the full job of digesting the whole thing. Whereas if you have a long fermentation, for example, of 48 hours, you will destroy 96% of all the gluten in that dough. And people who have problems with gluten sensitivities will mostly, by and large, be able to eat sourdough breads with long fermentations without any difficulty at all. And the other thing that we've done is, and this happened over 100 years ago, we started turning to white flour. And with that, we're throwing away one-third of the nutrition that's in the wheat kernel, the germ and the bran, uh, which helps us in the digestion and, and the flow through the intestine. And so all of those things add up to, I think, the problem that we're facing today. So it's much bigger than just one simple item. It's a orchestration of many different aspects that have come together to create a big problem. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Quinn, let me take one moment to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and my guest is Dr. Bob Quinn. He is the co-author of an excellent book 
titled Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food. The co-author is Liz Carlisle. And it's a page turner, Dr. Quinn. It talks about the history of agriculture, the history of what's happened to rural farming communities as a result of truly foolish policies. I guess we thought they were good at the time, but they have failed rural communities. And then getting back to the notion that our food system, I think you have a comment towards the end of the book where you say, you know, it's like water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. We've got food at every turn, but it's processed food. It's industrialized food. It's not nutritious food. And so I think looking at that concept through the lens of wheat is really fascinating, and I'm grateful for this book. But I want to jump into this idea of GMO wheat. And the reason why I bring this up is because when I go to the grocery store and I look at different loaves of bread, I see the non-GMO label on there. And I think, well, that's kind of foolish because, you know, like we have GMO corn, we have GMO soy, we have GMO canola. But as far as I know, there isn't any GMO wheat, not because Monsanto didn't try to get it on the market. But as far as I know, we don't have any GMO wheat that's being produced today. Is that true? Yes, it's not commercially available. That is true. So why these labels? I don't understand. And then people are confused because we read other reports that say, well, a lot of our wheat products have glyphosate residues in them, as if to think that maybe the wheat was genetically modified, just like the corn and the soybeans, to resist spraying with glyphosate. You're saying Mm. we don't have GMO wheat, but it's still sprayed with Roundup? Well, not everywhere, but in many places, it is sprayed with Roundup as a desiccant to both kill weeds and terminate the, um, and ripen the, uh, speed the ripening of the grain. And when it's sprayed that close to harvest, that is where you get your biggest contamination of Roundup on the grains. Probably a much more important source or critical source on chickpeas and lentils and, and other pea products because almost all of them are sprayed everywhere as a desiccant where, if they're not organic. And the reason you're seeing so much non-GMO labeling is because the government has refused to allow or mandate the labeling of GMOs in a way that's easy for people to separate them and recognize them. So an independent party took it upon themselves to certify that certain foods were non-GMO. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just to confirm, there is no GMO wheat production that we know of in... No, there's no commercial... Right. It's not, it's not supposed to be in existence anyway. Okay. But the contamination is from glyphosate or Roundup, which is being sprayed not because the wheat was genetically engineered to resist it, but because it's used as a desiccant. Right, to kill the wheat and the weeds that might be contaminating it. And also in the upper Great Plains, we have now no-till chem fallow operations. We only have enough rain to grow crops every other year. So in the off year, when we're collecting moisture for the crop year that follows, many fields are sprayed with Roundup three or four times during this season. And Monsanto said that, oh, don't worry about that. It will just immediately break down in the presence of sunlight and and contact with the soil. Well, none of that's true. And so we're finding that uh, it is accumulating in the soils. And if it's accumulating in the soils, there's some uptake into the plants, a very minute amounts. It's not enough to kill the plants, but it's certainly 
is being floated into the seeds. And that's a problem, too. Tell me about Kemut. You have been involved in its production. Tell me how you were introduced to it. Tell me how it differs from perhaps the traditional wheat that we see on the market. Well, Kemut is a trademark, actually. It's not the name of the wheat. It's a trademark that we register as a family to market an ancient wheat, which is a very close relative to Durham. Um, the common name is Coruscant. Okay. And it is a wheat that's never been commercialized before. I first saw it when I was a kid in high school at the county fair, and old man was passing out this grain, calling it King Tut's Wheat. And it was just a novelty. And we had an opportunity to get some and grow some, and we didn't really have a market for it, but we grew it in hopes of selling it to corn nuts and make a, a wheat snack with it. But by the time we had enough to sell them, they weren't interested anymore. But we took it to a food show, and there was one person interested, so we started planting it. And we had a friend in California that decided that it'd make a great pasta, which it did. And when we are passing that out to some of our friends, we gave it to one who couldn't eat wheat at all. And not only could she eat it, but she said she felt better after she ate it. And that changed my whole vision of what this grain was or what it might do and really be a, a health boon to people who are having problems with wheat sensitivities. And we started research because of that and published 31 peer-reviewed journal articles since then comparing this ancient wheat to modern wheat and found an astounding amount of information. Where can consumers find this product in the market? Well, you can find it at any health food store. Bob's Red Mill is probably the biggest carrier of it in flour and grain. It's found in Eden Foods in the form of pasta. It's found by, made by Nature's Path and their heritage cereals. And uh, several small bakers, even local ones, are sometimes making kumut bread even for their local clientele. Well, I'm really interested in this research, especially because as a dietitian, I was fascinated by the research that you have published. And I believe you were working with researchers in Italy, and you found that people had remarkable responses to this grain. So they had yes. a drop in their cholesterol levels, for example. They did not experience, as you say, the GI upset related to it. What makes it different? Well, we don't really know the mode of action. We only know that when we do human clinical trials, it exhibits an enormous difference in inflammatory agents. In fact, it's anti-inflammatory, where most modern wheat causes inflammation in all levels. This is 30 to 45% different in being anti-inflammatory as far as markers for inflammation go in the blood. And that's where people can actually feel the difference that they've got such... Now, these are some uh, irritable bowel syndrome, for example, where they can actually feel the difference when they're eating. Those with heart disease that we publish studies on or diabetes really can't feel it, but blood tests show it. And they show the decrease in blood sugar and insulin and insulin resistance, increase in all cases of, of uh, magnesium, zinc, and calcium in the blood. And, of course, you've already mentioned cholesterol, was significantly reduced, even in heart patients that were on statins. But researchers didn't think they'd see any further reduction in cholesterol because all these people who already had a heart attack were on statins and many other drugs to prevent a recurrence of a heart attack. And yet there was a significant drop in cholesterol compared to a diet of modern wheat with a diet of ancient wheat. 
So it's quite remarkable. It's really opened up for me the understanding of how important nutrition is as opposed to just calories or pounds of food that we might consume. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was also fascinating how you described how different methods of agricultural production impacts the final product. So often I hear this message that, well, you know, organic agriculture, that's very nice, but it doesn't make a significant difference. But you're finding that what happens in the soil actually does have an impact on the nutritional quality of the grain. Yes, that's really true. And I mentioned earlier that I didn't think that there's a difference between the um, plant carrying where its nitrogen would come from, whether it was a chemical fertilizer or manure pile. But now I've really come to understand that it's not the plant that's important, it's the soil that's important. And if we take care of our soils and feed our soils, they can feed the plants. And they do a much better job than we can by applying what we think the plant needs in terms of some bag of um, chemical concoction. The other point that I wanted to bring forth from this agricultural perspective has to do with the way we produce our food, not only through chemical agriculture methods, but you talk about how we need more biodiversity and how what you've noticed, certainly all over the country, where we have these monocultures. So in Montana, yeah. you have monocultures of wheat. In the Midwest, there are monocultures of corn and soy. Tell me what you see as the way to a truly regenerative and resilient future. Well, monoculture is an artificial system that can only be successful and is propped up by large amounts of chemical inputs. And they can only be afforded by large government subsidies. The whole thing is an artificial system being propped up artificially, essentially from the government. And the government, really, with all the subsidies and payments that we used to receive, actually go to the chemical companies. Our farm subsidy checks almost equal exactly the cost of our farm chemicals. So it didn't come to us. It came through my checkbook from the government to the chemical companies. And so that's really a, a something that it's not really talked about or thought about much, but that's what's happening. So what we need to really do is focus on how nature grows, how nature has survived thousands of years, and it is because of the diversity that exists there. And we mimic that diversity with rotations on our farm. And people complain, oh, they'd say, oh, you're going to starve the world if you go organic. But what we've seen in our farm and research that's been done by Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania is that long-term studies of organic compared to chemical agriculture, I won't call it conventional because that's what we've been doing the last 10,000 years. What we've been doing the last 70 years is a great chemical experiment. And compared to that chemical experiment, there's very little difference with the Average organic yields. And in the third world company, they say, oh, well, what about the third world? You're going to starve them. Well, experiments coming out of India and Africa have demonstrated if those peasant farmers adapt organic principles, they can increase their yields by two or three-fold, and that can feed the world. Organic really is the future of agriculture and the only one that makes sense. Dr. Quinn, we need to close because unfortunately we're out of time, but I want to thank you for a truly remarkable book. We did not talk about your last chapter in which you call on people to reject the status quo and to be aware of the kinds of messages that we get that keeps this industrial system going forward. But I want to recommend the book. It's titled Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. 
I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Bob Quinn, for standing up and speaking out and telling the truth about what's been going on in grain agriculture. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.